0: Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Um, For those listening to this later, we did also read chapter 6, but we're going to spend most of our time in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. At the end of chapter 6, it says, the more the words, the less the meaning, which is a warning to every preacher. But uh, there we go, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is full of meaning. And sometimes it's difficult for us to to grasp, but we simply want to come with an attitude of humility and submission and pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would hear you speaking to us through your word and not just so that we are better informed, but that our lives might be molded increasingly to the likeness of Jesus the son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. In his name we pray. Amen. It's hard to live without money. Um, I suppose there are some people who manage to live off-grid, out in the wild, uh, using their Bear grills skills and uh, waiting for Ben Fogle to turn up. But most of us need money to live, and that's why it has such a powerful hold on us. Because our lives are shaped to a large extent by how much money we have or we don't have. That money determines where we live, what kind of home we live in, where we shop, what we buy when we do shop, what holidays we go on, if any, and whether we can avoid the NHS waiting lists. And so on. And it's no wonder that Liza Minnelli, there's a reference from the past, Liza Minnelli in cabaret sings, Money makes the world go round. Money makes the world go round. And then it's also no wonder that the Bible should warn us repeatedly of the dangers of money. Because if we believe, even partially, that money makes our world go round, whether as a nation or individually, personally, then we will do almost anything to get it, to have more of it and to hold on to it. So that what can be a powerful tool for good, and it can be, we read that in 1 Timothy 6 verse 18, what can be a powerful tool for good becomes a powerful substitute for God. A powerful idol that takes us prisoner and makes us its slave. Do you remember in the parable of the sower? And the seed in the different soils, Jesus tells us that the seed of God's word is choked by the weeds and the thorns of the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things, Mark 1 verse 19. And he warns us also, doesn't it, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Now, you might say to yourself, well, James, I'm not a rich person. Well, you may not be, but rich or poor, you could still be worshipping the idol of wealth and materialism. Because in our culture and in our society, we all swim in a sea, in an ocean of materialism. And we all breathe in the air of consumerism. It's all around us. And because it's the the sea that we swim in, and because it's the air we breathe, we don't tend to notice it. In fact, we tend to accept it as normal, even as Christians. Rather than always recognizing the dangers of the deceitfulness of wealth. Well, the teacher Koheleth is under no illusions about the deceitfulness of wealth, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we see three ways in which money and wealth are deceitful. For despite the many promises that money makes, they all turn out to be lies whispered by the devil. In the film of The Wizard of Oz, which I looked up, was released in 1939. So, although I should say spoiler alert, you've had plenty of years to see it. In The Wizard of Oz, there is a man behind the facade, the appearance of the ghost-like figure. He's pulling the levers, isn't he? Operating the machinery. And in the same way behind the attractive surfaces, the the attractive facade of the promises that wealth makes, there is a liar operating the machinery and pulling the levers. A liar, the devil, that ancient serpent. He's whispering, isn't he? Did God really say? Isn't that what you were hearing last week from Genesis 3? Those of you who were here or heard it online from Kenny Rogan. Did God really say? It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How unfair of God. Did God really say you cannot serve him and money both? How narrow-minded of God. How mean. And you can hear the echoes of that conversation in the Garden of Eden, can't you? God being pictured as narrow-minded and mean and unfair. Did God really say? That's the whispers of the liar. Lying the false promises that money makes to us, the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, before we look at these three lies, which are in verses 10 to 17 uh, of chapter 5, we need to think about verses 8 and 9. Now, these are difficult verses to understand, and it's partly because the Hebrew, the original language, is difficult to translate, which may be why your verse 9 is very different to my verse 9. But I think. It's possible that the teacher here is saying, although money is not mentioned specifically, that the teacher is possibly saying that it's the desire for a financial gain, it's the desire for money, something in our pocket, that is leading to the oppression of the poor and to injustice. And we know that that does happen. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, And justice and rights denied. Do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits profits from the fields. You see, if an official abuses the poor, extorts money from them, or abuses them in some other way, he has to pay a bribe to the official above him or her to buy their silence so that they will ignore what's going on. And that official has to pay the one above them to do the same. So you again end up with a whole chain of corruption that lines the pocket of officials, but keeps the poor oppressed and denies them justice. And I think there are some parallels here. They're not, they're not exact parallels, but there are some parallels here with the Horizon post office scandal. Now, oh, it's true, the post office did not set out in the first instance to rob or fraud or defraud postmasters and postmistresses. It was faulty software that was to blame for the faulty figures in the accounts. But when those mistakes were uncovered, it seems to me anyway, it seems that the overriding desire of officials at whatever level was to make the books balance, to get the money back. Even if that led to hundreds of innocent people being accused of stealing led to witness statements being changed and people ending up in prison and some taking their own lives and you see that attitude of wanting to make the banks the books balance and and trying to retrieve the money no matter what cost it was to the you might say the poor. The ones at the bottom level, that seems to have been passed up from one official to the next official. I use that language because that's the words that Ecclesiastes is using here. Right up to the very top to the chief executive. So that justice was denied and people were deprived of their rights. What does the teacher say? Remember this is wisdom literature. He simply says, don't be surprised at such things verse 8. Do not be surprised at such things. This is what life looked like under the sun 1,000 years before Christ, and this is what life looks like in the year 2024 AD. How much more in many other countries across the world. Well, in verses 10 to 17, the teacher moves on to look at the, the three things that demonstrate the deceitfulness of wealth, three things that money promises but cannot deliver. And the three things are these, uh, satisfaction, sleep, and security. Satisfaction, sleep, and security. Satisfaction in verses 10 to 11. We'll look at that verse. Some of you will know that in the film, The Little Shop of Horrors, Uh, a a comedy, a horror comedy film, The Little Shop of Horrors, there is a plant called Audrey, or Audrey II, Audrey the Second. And the plant develops a taste, this is a plant that speaks, a plant that develops a taste for blood. But if you've seen the film, you'll know that its appetite grows and grows. So originally it's just a speck of blood, but its appetite grows and grows until it ends up eating, anybody know? Humans. It's a comedy, honestly, but it's not true. And one one of the lies of the devil, isn't it? One of the lies of the devil, as I was saying earlier in the service, is the lie that just a bit more money will keep us satisfied. A little bit more will just be enough to make us happy. But it is a lie because verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this too is futile, pointless. Now I think the tragedy of the human condition, and even for us as Christians, the tragedy is we know this. We know the devil's lie is a lie. And yet we still fall for it time and again. And that's because there's part of us wants to believe the lie. We want to believe it's true. Because it's so attractive. Isn't it? Just a little bit more. Whatever that more is. And I'll be content. Just a bit more. And we'll be satisfied. But God doesn't lie. God cannot lie. And God loves us too much to lie to us. Money, wealth, buying things, always reaching out for more things, whether they are material things or whether they are things whether they are things like experiences which we buy with money none of these things can satisfy the deep hunger and thirst at the heart of every human being it's a hunger and thirst for the kind of contentment that only jesus christ can give us And to look for satisfaction and contentment in the love of money and the the acquisition of things, looking for more things, consumerism, is like trying to drink from a sieve or to slake our thirst, as we were saying earlier with Harrison and others, trying to slake our thirst by drinking salty water. It just increases our thirst. If our hearts have been captivated by the love of money, or the love of things, or the love of just that one more thing and I'll be satisfied. It is only the love of Christ that can set us free from that. And I don't mean so much our love for him, I mean his love for us. It's his love for us. It's the love of the one who, though so rich, became so poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich with those unsearchable riches of Christ, rich in Christ and satisfied in Christ. And this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God held out to you and me. So let me ask you all, have you received that grace? Have you received that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received him, the one in whom that grace is found? Verse 11a, the teacher says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. I mean, does the teacher mean literally? It's possible. Certainly when I was a, uh, when I was a medical student in India in 1988, it was the first time that I kind of learned that there are certain cultures, certainly in the Asian culture, it's a sign of being well-off to be fat, to be overweight. You know, the sign of being wealthy and well-off is being well-padded. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. There may be other explanations for that uh, for that observation. But let's move on, because what benefit are these goods? What benefit are they? these things that are far beyond our daily bread? It's so instructive, isn't it, the Lord's Prayer? Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. Not our weekly bread, not our yearly bread, not our bread to see us through to our pension and death, but our daily bread. What we need day by day. And what benefit are these things which are far beyond our daily needs, except except for us to feast our eyes on them? The picture that came to mind, and I'm not a I'm not a Tolkien expert, uh Ilya will keep me right here, but in the Hobbit, in the Hobbit, um, smog, is that how you say the name of the dragon? Smog, smog, there's a bit of a Controversy, how you say that? What does he do? He lies in the in the deep in the heart of the mountain. He's stolen the dwarves' treasure, and he holds, has all this huge wealth, but it's hidden on. It's just lying on top of it. What good is it to him? What do you think, Ilya? Nothing, except to feast his eyes on it, and he gets very angry when as a Bilbo Baggins steals the goblets. Verse eleven, B. What benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Now, you might say, James, I don't have a collection of Rembrandt paintings or Turners to feast my own. I don't have a collection of Ming vases to feast my own. Well, no, but what about your bank balance? Do you ever feast your eyes on it? Or your savings account? Or your pension? Or the share price if you have shares? I probably short. I probably shared this story before, but when I when I was in a position to buy uh, uh, my first um, house or flat, it was in Dundee. I had a mortgage with the Alliance in Leicester, which in those days was a building society. It's no longer around. But then, after a few years, so a building society, mutually owned by uh, people like me with a mortgage and savers and whatnot. After a while, it demutualized, It became a bank. It was floated on the stock market which meant it now had shares. And because I had an account with the Alliance and Leicester, I got a free gift of 100 or 150 shares. Now, they paid out a dividend every year. It wasn't huge. Some years it was like £30. Other years it was £70, £80, which back in the 90s was was okay, thank you very much. But then came the crash of 2008, when everything was going like that. Northern Rock collapsed, Alliance and Leicester And I find myself every day looking at the share price of my little alliance in Leicester shares. So you know what I did? I sold them. I said, you need to sell these, James. This is getting out of hand. This is stupid. There's nothing wrong with money or wealth or even having shares, but there's nothing wrong with having a right hand either. But Jesus says if your right hand is causing you to sin, Cut it off. So I sold the shares. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It's the deceitfulness of wealth that says the opposite. And it's a lie from the devil. By the way, I didn't give very much for the shares. So that's the first lie. Satisfaction comes from money. Second lie is sleep. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Perhaps... Perhaps you've known sleepless nights because you're worried about how you're going to pay the bills. You're worried about a lack of money. And if so, verse 12 might seem like nonsense. But again, it's a lie of the devil. It's the lie of the devil that says, if only I had plenty of money and plenty of things, I would be able to sleep at night. But for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's not just that they... There's a a, a possible reference here to the rich man's stomach being overfull, but it's not just that the rich person's overfull stomach gives them indigestion, keeping them awake at night, because after all, the sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or eat a lot. The teacher is saying, I think the more you have, the more you have to worry about. You know, if you have nothing of any value in your home, you don't need to worry about being burgled. In fact, the burglar might even have some sympathy and leave something. It's when we have lots of stuff that we want to protect it, that we fit the alarm and take out the insurance. So having lots of money and having lots of things doesn't guarantee us a good night's rest. Because if our sense of worth is wrapped up in what we're worth financially uh, financially, or what we have. If our meaning is found in what we own materially, then we will feel vulnerable to anything that threatens that. You think uh, of a Premier League footballer who has lots of abundance. Most Premier League footballers get paid, well, some of them get paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. Most of them get paid tens of thousands a week. Some get paid hundreds of thousands a week. But how do, I don't know any personally, but you know stories when they get broken into, how do most of them seem to live? How do they try to get a good night's sleep? They install security cameras, gates and guards, alarm systems, and even a safe room within your own home. And every little noise outside your window has you wide awake. Your wealth has made you vulnerable. So money might promise us a good night's sleep, but it's a promise it cannot keep or deliver. And how much better, how much better to come to the Lord Jesus and find rest in his arms, to take his easy yoke upon us rather than the crushing yoke of worshiping and serving the God called money or mammon. How much better to put our trust in the Lord who gives his beloved sleep That doesn't mean a Christian will never lie awake at night. But it is a promise to encourage us to trust the Lord and not to lie awake worrying. Money cannot bring us satisfaction. It cannot promise us sleep. And then thirdly, and lastly in verses 13 to 17, uh, money and wealth cannot bring us security. Well, they promise us security, don't they? Money promises a kind of security, but it's a dangerous kind of security. Look at verse 13. I have seen a grievous evil unto the son, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. It's an unreliable security, wealth. Life is uncertain. Misfortune can strike us in any number of ways, as verse 14 says, through the loss of health, the loss of a job, the collapse of a bank, being falsely accused by the post office of stealing, or by a war breaking out, forcing us to flee our homes, as our friends here from Ukraine have had to do. Or by an unexpected bill, Um, you know, the boiler packs in. Or there's a leak in the shower or the bathroom. Or as someone I was speaking to three or four weeks ago, they discovered dry rot in their home. And when they started to investigate, not just a little bit of dry rot, but extensive dry rot. Thousands and thousands of pounds. And more than that, when they started to take everything apart, and uh, an old extension had been built on the house before the guy had bought the house, and then he discovered the roof of the extension was made of asbestos. More money. And this guy who had had basically taken early retirement because of ill health is now having to go back to work. See, money, money, no matter how much you have, money cannot guarantee security, not even in this life. Never mind the life to come. And what about the life to come? What happens when we die? What happens when a rich person dies, when a poor person dies, when a person of average income dies? How much do they leave? Everything. Everything. Verse 15 and 16, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? You know, I have seen personally and heard of some very strange things being put in people's coffins, including a packet of cigarettes. But there are no pockets in a shroud. No pockets. And if you and I are simply toiling for the wind, end of verse 16, if we are simply toiling for the wind, what do we gain? What do we gain? If we're simply toiling for the wind, then our work, our wealth, our lives are ultimately futile and pointless. And no wonder so many sit in darkness, in frustration, great frustration, verse 17, affliction and anger. And I just wonder, is that why? Is that one of the reasons why so many people are so angry today? Seems that way. People are angry. Is it because that they their lives are a toiling for the wind. And they kind, of, they kind of recognize that with their frustration, but they don't know or don't understand what to do about it. They don't know what the answer is. Well, in verses 18 to 20, the teacher gives us part of the answer. It's not the whole answer, but it is part of the answer. Life is to be received and lived as a gift from God. Verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. See, labor is still toilsome. It's a toilsome burden in a fallen world. But to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. Life is short, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. It's not the whole answer, and it's not meant to be a simplistic answer because verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 make that clear. Not everyone is able to enjoy what God has given them. But if we, are, if we are able by God's grace, and the teacher is clear, he mentions God four times in these verses, he's clear it is the gift of God, which is the grace of God, to be happy with our lot, contented, whether rich or poor, and to enjoy what we have, whether much or little, we will discover, as Paul says to Timothy, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you want to know great gain in your life? Well, godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy 6, verse 6. And as we bring this to a close, we read earlier, didn't we, from 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We are to put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is not a hair shirt God. God does not want us to take a vow of poverty. No such thing in Scripture, as far as I'm aware. But we know that from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that to put our hope in God means putting our hope and trust in the one who reveals God to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate and the hope of God incarnate. Jesus, who is the life that is truly life, that we take hold of by faith. And to see, to put our hope in Christ, in the God who has revealed himself to us in Christ, who is the life that is truly life, to put our hope in him means we do not need to put our hope in wealth. Or things. Or just that bit more. And that sets us free To be rich in good deeds. To be generous and to share. And willing to share in the name of Jesus. Jesus who left behind nothing but the clothes he was wearing. But has given us everything we need. To find satisfaction, sleep and security in him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we realize that we live in a world which places a premium on the kind of things that the teacher is critiquing and analyzing. And Father, we confess those times when we have bowed at the foot of the God called money or mammon or wealth. Father, we thank you that your word opens our eyes to the deceitfulness of wealth. Help us to realize that it can never bring us lasting satisfaction or even a good night's sleep, never mind security. Help us, Lord, to put our hope in you, you who came to us in Jesus, that we might discover the life that is truly life. And by so doing, be liberated to be gracious and generous with others, as you have been gracious and generous to us. Amen.